this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. So if you're just joining us, uh, maybe just visiting this week, or, uh, or maybe you've been here the last number of weeks, you, you may or may not know, but we're in the middle of a, a series, we're actually coming to the end of a series on the Bible and culture and uh, basically wrestling with um, how as Christians we approach, uh, how we approach scripture without any assumptions of what we mean by that. And uh, in many ways, we're coming to uh, bring that conversation to uh, a practical example, if you like, though uh, a a difficult one uh, for, for a few different reasons. I wanna have a conversation this morning about human sexuality and to reflect on what the, the Bible has to say about that. And uh, we're going to specifically think through that uh, regarding the LGBTQ plus uh, conversation that is, um, that is out, out there and, and probably known to, to many of us gathered here. But um, So I, I want us to, to do that just now. And I was, I was thinking in general about uh, just human sexuality and as a, as a Christian over the last... Uh, few weeks and my mind went back to uh, strangely an assembly that we once had at school um, well, it, it, I must have been like 14 or 15 something like that and there was uh, there was missionaries doing a tour I think they're from North America somewhere and they'd been around our church and they had uh, rock, they rocked up at assembly and, and gave it a, a, a rather punchy talk if you like and uh, I, I, I want to tell you a wee bit about that and tell you on my reflection on that uh, as I look back now, but the, the guy basically went into this really elaborate story about how much he regretted um, having sex and engaging in, in, in sexual activity before marriage and went on to say what a train wreck his life was for so many years because he had sex before he was married. And he, he went on and on and made this point and... Um, and I remember thinking to myself, uh, oh my goodness, I mean, it sounds like if you touch this thing, whatever it is, it, your, your life is just going to go uh, and, and fall to bits. And my reflection looking back, um, not just now, but I, I remember near the time as well, is going like, see when it comes to these conversations on sexuality, scaremongering and fear is so unhelpful when it comes to sexuality. I, I, I'm not saying there's not such a thing in the Bible as holy fear and, re, uh, and, and awe and reverence for God, but there was just something as I look back to that, it just struck a, a fear chord that there's this thing that was so wrong or so bad that you couldn't touch, that if you did, you know, your life would just fall apart. And that simply, as I looked at it, just wasn't true. And I look back now and I believe now as we stand and think about the complexity of human sexuality I think there's something just so unhelpful if fear is driving the conversation. 
I, I was also reflecting back to a time when uh, my mum my dropped a, a leaflet in, under my bedroom door and said to me, if you have any questions, just come and ask. <laughs> you can guess what the leaflet was going in the outs of how some plumbing works and different things. I'm 38 just now and I've still not had a conversation about any of that stuff and uh, about how it works. I, I remember sitting at the dinner table going like, why the heck would you do that? Drop that leaflet. Yeah, there's different types of people. There's the hedgehog and there's the rhino. The rhinos like to just go at confrontation and take issues on. I'm more of the hedgehog category, particularly when it comes to this stuff. I, when it gets difficult or awkward or, or, or scary, I'm, I'm like the hedgehog who just wants to recoil and hide rather than just confront and face into. It's a wee bit what has been modeled to me and it's some of the, the way I approach lots of things, not least this. But it's not lost on me that, that I'm no expert on the matter, nor I think is any one person capable of speaking in such a way that represents the full variety of experiences that are in this room. And that is genuinely to say that please forgive me if I don't say something quite as you would or quite give an account exactly the way you would want to or as fully as you might Expect, but here's what here's what I want us to consider this morning. I would love us to consider some cultural pressure points when it comes to sexuality today, specifically when it comes to the ongoing LGBTQ plus conversation. I would also want us to reflect and consider some important biblical textual pressure points when it comes to the LGB uh, bit. We're not going to delve massively at all, really, in the transgender and the other aspects of that. Uh, because of the complexity. But I also want us to offer a biblical rationale for Christian marriage. But I, finally, I want to leave enough room for us to consider what, what does a Christian response or what do Christian responses look like in this? And I hope something that no matter where you approach the issues in this, as you, um, as you sit in this moment just now, that we can all lean in and agree these are basic Christian responses to that. So firstly, to some of the, the cultural pressure points when it comes to the LGB uh, conversation, that it, it, I remember it first was really dropped on my lap just how much in the public sphere the perception of Christians and the church is that we are anti-gay and homophobic it was first underscored for me sort of in detail by a book um, called Unchristian by, is, uh, there's an organization in the States called the Barna Group, uh, a guy called Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, um, who put together this book based on research, based in America, they've since done research in, in Scotland as well, that was trying to get at what particularly millennials thought of, of Christians and trying to understand why the church was leaking so much, and this is where the, one of the number one perceptions were that Christians were against things, and anti-gay was one of the, the loudest things. And it, it's, I think it's really important to underscore just what it looks like to, in a, in a post-Christian culture, uh, to understand the perception that is there um, uh, in the world that we 
exist. Sometimes we don't really specify what we mean by post-Christian culture and really name some of the negative equity that is a culture that understands the faith and perceives it in a particular way. For example, when I was growing up, Christians still, in a broad sense, had the moral high ground when it came to sexual ethics. By that I mean people would, would look at you and it would almost be the, the purity joke. We, we, you're the holier ones because you don't have sex until you're married. And it was the sense of, you know, if I came to church, I would maybe catch fire and all the things that go along with that. But the undercurrent of it was that actually we, that we had the sort of moral high ground superiority. But actually in the culture that we find ourselves in now is any sort of last uh, remnants of that is, is obliterated because actually there's no moral high ground. You say the word Christian, you're immediately put in the category of a bigot, somebody who again is anti-whatever or anti-homosexual, anti-gay, and we do not have the moral high ground. So hence why things like evangelism has taken a big hit while we figure these things out. There's a reason why you will struggle to have conversations in different spheres, maybe your colleagues and neighbors, because you will know, maybe subconsciously, that there's a perception that immediately you say that it has the connotations like I've described. And to be honest, we can't exactly, I don't think Christians can just bemoan this entirely, at least not without recognizing some of the absolute failures of the church when it comes to specifically issues like um, dealing with the, with the with gay community or embracing the gay community. We've been slow to defend the basic human rights that would protect people from hate crimes. The ship has sailed, but if we had been on the forefront of defending various minority groups and their basic human rights, would we be able to have a different conversation? We failed to welcome and just offer basic humanity at points and friendship to people because there's been a sense of being untouchable for whatever has driven that. I think we've also failed at times to live up to well, just basic sin of hypocrisy. We, and I'm talking generally as a church, as I see it in, in a context in Scotland, we have elevated certain sins like homosexuality or anything like that and ignored other aspects that are, are, are are laid right beside it in the, in the Bible around greed, money. We, we, we love talking about sexual stuff, but yet actually we ignore stuff like gossip and, and slander, which scripture just says and holds really quite closely together. And so we, we can't bemoan exactly as Christians that actually there's a big bad world out not treating us right. But it, it's, it's fair to say that you know, the, the church at, at large has not resolved the LGBTQ plus conversation 100%. There are different denominations who have de taken different stances. There's different denominations in process with different um, positions on, on how to respond. And do you know something? We should just go a little easy on ourselves as Adelaide plays gather to have a conversation. If the church globally has not figured this particular issue out 100% in a way that there's a fresh agreement and, and sense of where we're at, then we should at least pace ourselves around, actually maybe 
in a Sunday morning, we're not gonna figure everything out as we just begin to explore uh, some really complex issues. But it's also important to say in, in that same vein that it's not lost to me that there is a, a gap in the attitudes towards sexuality, particularly if you follow some of Barna's research with uh, young adults under the age of 25 versus people 30 plus and older, there is a vast difference in how you approach sexuality and how a generation or two above approaches sexuality. And again, this is a reality that we just need to acknowledge that is in the room. For uh, I'm not gonna touch much on the sort of cultural war aspect of, of how we got to where we got to, but there is a, a helpful talk if you, I think it's on YouTube, a guy called John Tyson, um, at least gives a helpful talk and outline in some of the, the sociolo- sociological and political aspects that have driven the culture war, and it's a, it's a talk well worth checking out. But there's also so there's pressure points in different people's perception, in age groups, in the way that Christians are perceived in the culture. There's also pressure points, as many of you will know, in, in, in the political sphere, things like the Gender Recognition Act and the education changes and programs that are being rolled out in Scotland, some of the most progressive in all of Europe. All of these things are moving at quite a pace that will be on some of your radar, and some of you will feel, I guess, differently about that. But again, there's pressure on, on that. There's also pressure, from a cultural point of view, on human rights. Article 16 and Article 18 of the European Convention of Human Rights is interesting. It's, it's not to be ignored as Christians, and without rushing to conclusions of what we mean by that, It's just worth noting that actually some of these ones which defend freedom of religion and freedom of speech, there's pressure. There's cultural pressure building at a political level that that at least makes us, should make us at least be awake to what is going on in our world. But however, as you will know, this is not simply a culture war. This is a very personal reality for families, for our neighbors, our friends, both straight and gay, same-sex attracted, our sons and daughters and their friends, intersex or transgender. This is not just a cultural war issue. This is about real people. And so any conversation we have about these things cannot be merely about winning an argument. The whole point of our series of looking about the Bible has been talking about the Bible was given so that we can find ourselves in a relationship with the living God. So this is about more than winning an argument. This is about living well in the way of Jesus, which is about loving people well and loving God with our whole hearts, minds, and our bodies, which means as an absolute bare minimum, this is about treating people of all backgrounds, ethnicity, age, sexuality, with dignity, kindness, respect, and above all, love. But before we move from, I guess, just having recognized, look, there, there's, there's some pressure on, on our culture out there that we feel. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to put, go to just explain some terms and clarify a few ones to help guide our conversation going forward. And forgive me if I am 
telling you stuff that's patronizing, but it's just to be clear, even down to the language of LGBTQIA, um, I said we'll be focusing on the lesbian, gay, and, and bisexual ethic, if you like, in, in this morning's uh, conversation and sermon. But the, the T for transgender, the Q for queer or, or questioning, the I for intersex, and the A for asexual are all distinct people groups with different challenges and complexities. And let's, be recon- let's recognize those and to embrace the, the range that there. Instead of that just being a slur or, or a stream of letters we just throw out there. And I'll also be using the language of, of, of gay to, instead of homosexual because the perception among the, the gay community is that when you use words like homosexual, it kind of has a slur. It has a connotation of something that actually cuts against them and is not helpful because there's, there's something that's so about their identity that's caught up in, in, in the word gay that I, I'm more than comfortable using that. And I think it's a, a helpful way to engage in the conversation. But in the same breath, I also want to, um, to use the language of, being, of, of same-sex attracted as well because I don't want to lose out the fact that there's people, a lot of people within the Christian community who want to use the word same-sex attracted to, to distance themselves from some of the identity associated with the, with, the, with the LGBT movement and to say, actually, I, I, I hold that in a different way. And so you might want to use the language of same-sex attracted and, and appreciate there's different things going on. And, okay, so I want to just, if we can just acknowledge that this is complex and this is difficult, and this is probably one of my least favorite sermons that I've ever had to think about giving. I was, even, I was on the, I texted my mom this morning, I do that occasionally when I feel in the particular need for a prayer, and she's like, why are you doing that? And I was just like, oh, just because, you know, I love a bit of, you know, controversy. Um, as, as, as a community here, as disciples, we take seriously how we live out our lives to follow Jesus. And so I think to be disciples means to be learners, means to be followers, means we need to learn and to just recognize in some of these cultural pressure points. But okay, now if we can recognize that to some degree, could we now start to explore some of the important textual pressure points. And there are six important passages that I think speak most directly into this conversation, which are on the screen behind me. So the first one, Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm just going to read those without comment, but then I'll return to that text in a few moments. Genesis 1, 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Now Genesis 19, I'm not going to read, I will reference and encourage you to read. And it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the story of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And this is assuming certain biblical knowledge, forgive me for that. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, um, and they're having these angelic visitors who first go to Abram, who were representing God, and then who go to Lot, who's been a bit of a folly, and Lot has gone to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they have lived and lived their life. And they have, the, the angels deliver, uh, they come to see what is going on because there's been a proliferation of evil uh, that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it, it's a pretty horrific story of um, these angelic men visiting the city and all the men, young and old, as it says in Genesis 19, come out to rape the men and to rape them as they come. And Lot does the most ridiculous, horrendous stuff that says, no, 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 instead of the, 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 the men, like, ha- have, these, uh, ha- these angelic visitors, have these angelic have two of my daughters. And you're just like, the, the depravity of the whole scene is, is horrendous. And, and in Jude... Seven, uh, Jude verse 7 in the New Testament, it picks up uh, the sense of looking back on this sort of sordid affair of the Old Testament. And Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served an exa- as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Now, one of the things for me that the, the whole conversation has brought up more recently, as I there's a sort of shorthand version for this whole issue that Sodom and Gomorrah was almost like a clincher text that spoke clearly into the issues that I've kind of alluded to. And my own conclusion or struggle with this passage is that actually in its own right, I don't think it says very much into the issue that, we, that I have just outlined. I think the severity of the the gang rape and the, the scene, in terms of a, 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 an issue that says that's about this and this is about, you know, we're talking about similar things. For me, I, I cannot see yet how I read the, the Jude passage or, or even any of that and go like, this has anything um, very clear in its own right to say on the issue. Because remember, as we're saying about this whole issue about the Bible and culture, we read it in light of the story of Jesus, the new covenant of Jesus. And I think it's been used too much as a cheap shot. Even that phrase, sodomite, 
with no distinction or clarity about what was actually going on in the actual original story and text, how sordid it was, to inject that into conversations today without discrimination, without making sense of the issue, I personally find that a very unhelpful and difficult move to make. And so it's a story and a text, but it's not one that comes without a health warning, nuance, patience, and understanding. And I, 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 I just would encourage everybody to leave that phrase, sodomites, out of the conversation when you're talking about this issue. It's a horrible shorthand for how to basically perpetuate hate to a community that already feel it. The other passage that, passages that are significant and speak in some ways into the situation are Leviticus 18 and 20. Leviticus 18 verse 22 says this, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. There's a, a well-known scene in the West Wing. I don't know if you've uh, watched it um, or wasted uh, or, or spent a lot of hours of your life watching the West Wing. I certainly have. But there's a well-known scene in the White House drama um, where a talk show host defends calling homosexuality an abomination by appealing to the Leviticus passages that I've just talked to. And this is how the president responds uh, to that person. He says, well, I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleaned the table when it was her turn. What, what would a good price be for her? My chief of staff, Leo Magari, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obl obligated to kill him for myself or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this time. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11 uh, verse 7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? And, and so he goes on. And of, it, now you will have heard arguments like that put, and it's presented as a sort of slam dunk. You know, like it just is the the rug from under your feet, taking the legs from the person who the Christian or the person who takes the Bible seriously. But on the surface, it looks like a, a really strong critique. But actually, it's a really weak critique for any Christian because. Christians will know, any thoughtful Christian should know that we don't read the Bible flat. We don't read it, as we've said in this series, that it's not got contours, that it's not got a plot, that there's not discernment, that we just take such passages and read them literally. We make interpretive distinctions in light of the covenant brought about by the blood of Jesus. Jesus didn't just say the Old Testament law is rubbish and I'm doing away with it. The Gospels time and time again say Jesus came to 
fulfill the law. And so we learn to make distinctions and learn to discern how it applies today. Distinctions such as that which gets repeated and reinforced in the new covenant becomes binding or, or normative, if you like, for, for Christians today. We make distinctions of the law. Now, some of people would, cha- would challenge this, and I recognize that, such between the civil aspects of law, the moral and the ceremonial. The civil to do with Israel was a, a, a nation atti- attached to a land with particular rules and, and in a way that it doesn't apply to the Christian uh, scenario today. Ceremonial laws with a sacrificial system do not apply to Christians today because Jesus has fulfilled and done away and been the one sacrifice for, for all time. Uh, there's no need for the sacrificial system. And yet there is moral aspects in the Old Testament, including Leviticus Code, that still get taken up in the New Testament as we discern the way of Jesus. All that is to say, we don't just get to play cheap shots and we don't just get to pick and choose either, but we do remind ourselves that there's there's something in this Old Testament that as it leads us to Jesus that we need to make sense of. So, sorry, West Wing lovers. I love the president, by the way, on West Wing. Isn't he? He's the guy who's just a legend. But anyway, that's not the point of this morning, but it's just worth saying that. He's, he's, he's a good guy. Now, to move on to uh, a couple of the other few passages just to highlight. So I'm going to actually go 1 Corinthians 6, just now, verse 9 to 10, and take that with 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. There is a, there are a couple of words that make up, that are kind of combined together in a list that gets translated as the um, as men who have sex with men, or it's loads of different translations of those male prostitutes. Uh, it, it's got a whole different r- array of translations as you look through all the various English translations that are trying to get at um, two words that get combined usually to make up one of those uh, translations. The, 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 the two words are arsenokoitai or koite, um, and the other word is malakoi. Um, so there are two Greek words that, uh, that we would translate in lots of different ways about homosexual prostitutes or a homosexual man sleeping with a, a man. In, in the Greek, um, the arsenokoite is, is an interesting word. It's, it's an, I think most scholars say it's an innovation by Paul. Paul was a bit innovative at points with the Koine Greek language. And it seems so it's a composite word where the arsenal bit means male and the koitai bit means bed. So it really means males who bed with one another. And the word malakoi is a word in the Greek in this First Corinthians passage, which just means soft or, or effeminate. It speaks of the, the passive part male partner in a, in a sexual relationship. And 
It seems that Paul is drawing on two words that appear in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and specifically drawn on the, the verses we just read in Leviticus 18 and 20. Those words uh, are in there, and it seems that Paul has pulled them together in the Greek to, to present them here as, uh, as, gen- as general words, words that push against the practice of, of homosexual um, activity. Um, but it, it's worth giving voice to. There, there's pushbacks from revisionists who would say, hold on a minute. There are other words for homosexuality that Paul didn't use, that he could have used. And they also would point to later use of the word arsenokoitai in classic literature associated with economic transactions, implying exploitative homosexual behavior. And they'd also point to the fact that homosexuality as we know it today wasn't understood until more recently, maybe 19th century onwards. And it's worth noting the sort of argument that they are making is to say that, and I think it's one of the strongest arguments that is out there, is to say that based on these sections, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10 includes the same word, that it is not addressing monogamous same-sex relationships. Marriage isn't even addressed, but it is addressing something akin to exploitative, idolatrous um, activity, and therefore doesn't compute, if you like, to some of the issues today. It's worth recognizing that there is an argument and quite serious arguments out there, and the, 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 the interpretation, translation of the Greek of those two words, you will find is an important part of the discussion. While I think actually it's hard on balance to, um, to completely align from my perspective on that interpretation. So 1 Timothy 1.8 has the same thing. We'll leave that just now, but please note the, the texts are there to serve you in, in your own reflection. I want to read from Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. I will jump about a little bit. Um, it says, If the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity For the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty of their error. 
there is a, a, a sign in this text that says part of what it means to turn away from the ways of God is evidence in some of the behavior that is outlined, that the behavior is a sign that we have turned away from God's ways. I want to offer a rationale for, for heterosexual Christian marriage. And I do so as a, as a Baptist Union of Scotland accredited minister, which I know you know, really means not a lot to a lot of you, but that's why I am. I don't have the collar. I do sometimes wish I had a collar or a robe. I think I, would all, I, I just wonder what respect I might get in a place like this if I came in with my collar on someday. Um, but that's why I am. And, and, and I say that because legally, as it stands at the minute, I cannot marry a man to a man or a woman to a woman. I'm not registered to, and as a, a union, we've not been accredited and given that license. Like, it's not possible for me legally to do that. And I want to offer four reasons why I think that is still significant. Number one, I think covenantal love of marriage is the context uh, for sexual intercourse. Number two, I think scripture affirms a holy union at all levels, which signifies self-giving love. And number three, God's blessing before the fall included sexual differentiation. And number four, nowhere in the Bible is homosexual practice blessed. Back to number one, covenantal love of marriage is a context for sexual intercourse. And this is an allusion to the Genesis text. And in many ways, there's, there's a modest defense of marriage in general from culture that's to say like, any sexual activity outside of marriage, be it before marriage or heterosexual, whatever, is, is ruled out in scripture because it's the place of covenant and commitment and monogamy is, is the context for the expression of, of, of our physical acts of our sexuality. And, and I, I think there's, I would appeal to... The, culture still holds, to a degree, a, a high-ish view of that. There's a, there's a reason why it's good that we can't just get out of marriage easily, because relationships, you know, it, it, there's a reason why it's good that you cannot just fall into your neighbor's lap and into your neighbor's wife without socially there being things that get in the way of that, because it, it just makes sense to me that we still value commitment as a society, you know, the fact that it's difficult breaking up a marriage symbolizes the importance of relationships, as difficult as that could be. And so the context that we see in Genesis is of, of our sexual union is, is, in, is one in the context of marriage. The second one is about the holy union at all levels, which signifies self-giving love. It's, it's just to say the physical union is not insignificant uh, and it, it's, it's no less important than just the, the, the emotional of two people coming together, not least with the potential and logic of the blessing through procreation, that of having children, whether or not that is realized. But the logic of the physical union and the spiritual and emotional having a congruence and a potential to carry the blessing still, I think, is, is something that speaks of the union of, of how Scripture affirms 
uh, a union before God. Thirdly, the one I said about God's blessing before the fall included sexual differentiation. The Genesis text points to he created the male and female. Now, I'm not saying there's not complexities about that from a biological point of view, but it's, I, I also want to say that as you read that, I, I just can't read that and just say that's just by the by incidental. It, it, as some would say, that's actually not really about the sexual differentiation. That's just secondary to the fact that there's a union in this not being alone. As I read, I, I cannot see how that sexual differentiation isn't significant in the narrative of Genesis and in the order of God before the fall. That mutuality and sexual difference before the fall is seen as a God's good gift and blessing and, and design. And fourthly, the one that's about nowhere in the Bible is homosexual practice blessed. Some of this to me separates out on the, the point often helpfully connected to the other issues in the Bible, like slavery, women and leadership. You're like, what about that? What about this? You know, at a hermeneutical level, isn't there a connection? And there are connections. But the point of the, the di- distinction is that people who make arguments for women and leadership, for example, do so not out of complete silence, but do so from a position in the Bible that says, look at this example, look at that example, look where that is heading. The difficulty when it comes to this is that the Bible never blesses and never points to the blessing on homosexual activity at all. I wanted to say this is my best current understanding right at this moment in time. I don't say that this is my written in stone, never change your mind, never explore any other, but this is my best understanding. And wherever we stand this morning, I, get, I, I don't want to smooth over the fact that I know in this room that there are a whole range of opinions in this room that will agree and disagree with some of the things that I've just said. I'm not here to try and obliterate that, steamroll over that, I, I want to honor that and I want to recognize that. And I wonder if we do that, if we could consider some of these, what I think are much needed Christian responses to, the, to, to where we find ourselves in. So here's, here's some responses that I want us to think about as we, uh, as we move forward in that. And it'll be on the slide. The first is about walking, walking the extra mile. There's a thoughtful, affirming um, guy called Justin Lee, and he used this, which I quite liked. He used the analogy of uh, going the extra mile as Jesus commands us to do for our for our enemy. And I'm not saying, you know, cultural war aside that there's enemies and all that, but I, li- I liked how he used it because he was saying, you might disagree with me, but would you come the extra mile, go the extra mile, walk with me to try and listen to my experience, to our experience, to understand it, and to actually engage and embrace it on a, on a human level. I, 
I, I, I, I see so much need for us to be able to walk the extra mile, to go to listen to the people's experiences, to the, to the intersex person's experience, to the gay person's experience, to how they felt treated, to understand how they do still love God and take seriously the Bible, and to understand and to actually hear what they're trying to say, to walk the extra mile, to be willing. I, I, I would push against humbly anybody who holds a dogged position, who's never explored it, who's never listened to actual people's experiences. There's just even another night, I just YouTubed a video on intersex and listened to five different people tell their experience. The stories are there just to listen to and to hear the complexity. And I think we're bound as Christians to go the extra mile and to walk and to listen. I think as well, we, our Christian response is to study with the community of faith and not retreat from the public square on these issues. There's a phrase in the Reformation, the Semper Reformanda, the church is always reforming and in need of being reformed according to God's word. It can sometimes it appears just to kind of baptize the spirit of the age and change and can be brought out cheaply. But it's this concept that we are always reforming, always coming back to God's word, always studying, always reflecting, always adapting as we come back to it time and time again. And there's, there's such a need for all of us to commit to study as disciples, as learners, what the, the issues are, the complexity of them, and to embrace that place of study. And, and I could say that as much, to, there, there's sometimes I, I hear arguments, or not even arguments, people who just hold a position that this is just, uh, we should just be affirming regardless. And you ask them, how did you get there? And it has nothing to do with scripture at all. And I'm not trying to say this from like a, a top-down approach. I'm just saying, we, we should be very careful just to stand on our own subjective moral reason to say, I think this because I think this because I think this. And that is, we, we all do it in different ways at different points, let's be honest. But we're called to study. We're called to study with the community of faith, not just idly place figuring this out ourselves, although we're, we have a responsibility, but with the community of faith around the world as we seek to find a, a new piece about this. The church always reforming. I think the important one is about invitation. We need to invite. I think it's been the failure of Western views of family and marriage that have been influenced by romanticism. The idea that, that marriage is everything. The pinnacle, like you have to get married. You're not going to be fulfilled unless you're married. You, you, if you don't have kids in this, this family, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be satisfied. You don't fit the normal bill of what a, a family looks like. You're not anything. And and, and there's, there's all sorts of views out there of marriage that are actually unhelpful. When Jesus says, no, your primary community, actually, believers, is the family of God, there's meant to be this massive invitational place where it's easier to be celibate. It's easy to have people of all sorts, like Jesus did, sitting with people at his elbow, round the table, laughing with people with different backgrounds who society frowned upon. I mean, some of our failure to do this, I think, is, is about just a failure to welcome with open arms and love and eating and sharing our lives with people who are very different to us or the same as us. And sometimes the family and the marriage thing has just got in the way of it. You just think that's the goal of life, just to get married. And we've, we've, we've upheld that culture. And I love that we don't do that in this place, that we generally honor people of all backgrounds and single or whatnot. I think that's so precious. 
and so important to people as they try and, and follow Jesus. I think as well, my dark one, the search one, you may wonder what's that about? This is just my own intuition, so take it or leave it. All the rest is you have to take it, you know, 100%. No, take it or leave this. Sometimes, I, I'm just going to level with you. I, I don't believe people who are really hard in the Bible and manifest no fruit of love or kindness towards other people. I'm really suspicious of people like that. I'm suspicious that at times that we project our own things, our own baggage, even our own sexual shame and hiddenness. And if we can scapegoat on a bunch of people, a community, and name it and kind of distance ourselves, in some ways, psychologically, that eases our burden. I don't know how true that is, but I know the psalmists talk about, search me, O God, and know me, point out any way within me. That's Christians, our response. You know, Jesus, about the stone that was about to be thrown, and he says, right, you throw that stone if you're without sin. And, and there's just something in this conversation of, like, I just, for me, a check within myself, within ourselves, to say, like, let's be careful we are not in our venom to do this or that, that we are not projecting some of our own stuff that we've not been dealing with and not owning. Call it our shadow, call it whatever you want. And so part of the process has to be search me, O God, and know me. I think we need to remember we all need grace. It's not lost to me, by the way, that for many people in the gay community, this isn't an issue of sin, this is an issue of injustice. It's the equivalent of somebody a black person on a bus being asked to give up their seat. That's the way the issue is felt for them. But whatever way we look at the issue, there's something about the cross and the story of Jesus that just reminds, no matter where we come from, our sexual lives get caught up in the fall. And however any of us come here this morning, straight, gay, like, same-sex attraction, however, like, we... We should remember as people of the way of Christ, we are all in need of grace. And the phrase, Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who could stand comes to mind. And finally, I think there's something about resting on Jesus and the offer he gives of a deeper identity in his family. And this, just to broaden out to all of us, all of us about our fears, of acceptance about our bodies, our sexual appetite, our sexual past, history, present, present struggle, of any description, with things done that can't be, all of these things. I think Jesus wants to offer us an identity which is as a beloved one that's to say, look, if anything we find in Jesus is the fact of somebody who stands in the gap for us and in the middle of our, our brokenness says to us, you're loved. The primary thing about your life is you're loved. You're beloved, it's given. No matter what you do, or, or what, it, there, there's an offer through Jesus if you will turn to him that says, you will meet God and you will meet him as somebody who is infinitely for you. And that's as true for the person who thinks, I've got the same struggle, that no matter how good the music is, I still leave here and the struggle is still there. That embrace of God as somebody who is our lover and who wants to embrace us through Jesus is critical for us to embrace and critical for us to minister out of. 
was pondering myself, how will we know if we're heading in the right direction with this as a church and personally? And I came back to this idea that I alluded to at the start, that amidst our pursuit of truth and understanding, which we want to guard and go after, that increasingly fear is dispelled in light of the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. I don't see any progress in any of our relationships or our sexual lives and where they go well and where they go awry. I don't see any good thing coming of them if there is not a fear that is dispelled. It could be fear of shame. It could be fear of failure, repeated failure. It could be fear of so many, if people knew about where I am on certain things. It could be people fear. If you knew what the doubts I'm having about how I approach the faith and what that's doing to me, there is only a helpful way to move forward as we pursue truth. There's something about noting and charting that in Jesus, fear is dispelled through his love. And may that be our prayer, just enough for today to be our guide to say, God, would you lead us in your love as we pursue and seek to, to follow the one who says, You've, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And above all, we want to glorify him. And that's the sort of conversation we're having. So shall we, shall we pray and just offer this conversation to God in prayer? Father, Jesus, Spirit, we say again, we welcome you in this place and we love that as we meet you through Jesus, we meet a God who bends so low for us, who bears the, all the stigma and the shame that a world can throw at us, some deserve, some undeserved, Lord, that amidst all that, Lord, the voices that can be even in our head right now that accuse us of so many things, that there is a voice of love, a voice that speaks of a father, a voice that speaks of an embrace, a voice that speaks of life and liberty and a life worth living and a future that is filled up with potential and joy and healing and wholeness. Spirit of God, we, we pray that you would lead us forward to pursue Jesus with our whole hearts, with everything that we have, to embrace you and to live for your glory. God, would you lead us in that? We welcome you here. We welcome you here, Jesus. Would you just keep your heads bowed for one moment? 
I'm gonna just pray that shame that comes in any form that prevents us from I don't move them forward with Jesus that we'd encounter the fear of shame just being obliterated by the love of God your lives. God, we pray. We love you. We rest in you.